But you may have also noticed that we recently moved the baptismal font's home or resting place at St. Luke's. After many months, more than a year of construction and moving it around, when all the pieces came back together, we felt that the best place for it is right behind that last pew where you'll see it every time you enter into the sanctuary for worship. Now, one of the benefits of having it right at the doorway is that it is a visible reminder of the waters of baptism that form us as one family and body of Christ. It reminds us who called us here and made us children of God. And more practically, for some of us, there's once again a place to dip your fingers in the holy water and essentially bless yourself marking your body with the waters of baptism in the name of the Trinity. Now, this was not a tradition that I grew up with as a Presbyterian, but I quickly grew to love and appreciate it when I learned it at a Catholic church in college. I found quite quickly that it offered a weekly invitation to do what I had always been encouraged to do all my life, and the water on my forehead helped me focus on the truths in new ways. Remember your baptism. Remember that you are a child of God. And this identity is actually more real and important than any other role you play. Remember that you are forgiven for the many ways you mess up. And walk forward with gratitude and freedom and strength and joy. We make the sign of the cross, which is the shape of both Jesus' violent death and the incredible depths of forgiveness revealed through his resurrection. It's a shape that covers all manner of sins and faults, big and small, if we are humble enough to trace it, to face it, to really enter its invitation to deeper relationship with God. I have to admit as a mother that it made me catch my breath the other day to watch my son do this, leaning over that back pew into the baptismal font, doing what he had just no doubt seen some other people do. Because if, by God's grace and learning from the faithfulness of others in this place, he chooses to really trust the claim of that water, of that sign, that seal that already marks him, it would be to swim ever more deeply in the riches of the baptismal-shaped life. We all know that the baptism which we proclaim to be forever can be walked in shallowly or deeply. We can let it rest upon us, not transforming our lives on this earth quite noticeably, although I do trust God is always working in us. But we can also choose consciously to walk, to swim more deeply into that baptism. And it is not an easy swim, but it is still the one I hope for my son, for every person. Because this is what we say in baptism. Today for Nikolai, who will be baptized, and every time we baptize in the church. That the life of self-offering, not self-preservation, the life of humble and free response and service to the Spirit, 
not the self-sufficient slavery to personal achievement. That's what it means to really have life at all. Now, all four gospel stories depict or reference Jesus' baptism by John and the River Jordan. And every year after Epiphany, we celebrate and remember our Lord's baptism. As an author, Matthew wants to be sure that we aren't confused about what this baptism by John means. Now, he will not tell us exactly what it means, like the best storytellers, but he makes sure to put up a roadblock on one particular possible misinterpretation. When Jesus goes to be baptized by John, who was offering a baptism of repentance, Matthew wants to make sure we know that Jesus did not necessarily need to repent, or John was superior to Jesus. So to avoid these understandable wonderings, we hear this encounter between Jesus and John, present only in Matthew. John objects to baptizing Jesus, would have prevented it from happening, refusing Jesus' request, saying, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And Jesus' response affirms that John has an essentially correct understanding of the situation, affirms that he is indeed not a typical baptismal candidate. So Jesus says, let it be. In the Greek, permit it now, at this specific time, because it must be done in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness, what does that mean? Righteousness is a really hard, for, hard word for us to hear well as 21st century Americans because it has fallen out of use. I once had a woman ask me to coffee specifically to talk about this word, which kept popping up in church and she didn't understand it. We have this sense that it means something formal, something strict, something very serious. And in this case, and always, the word is actually talking about something serious because it's talking about the goodness of God's ways. But it is not strict like a formal legal contract that Jesus must complete, signing on the dotted line to make sure everything is just so. No, here the word righteousness is used as an aspect of discipleship, an act of submission and obedience to God, an alignment with God's purposes, intentions, will, and ways. This is fulfilling righteousness. Jesus has discerned that this is the right thing to do, to mark his ministry from the beginning as identifying somehow with the forgiveness of sins. Somehow he has discerned that this is what the Father wants him to do, and he follows. He thereby embodies the humility and obedience that will mark his life throughout. And then he invites John to trust in and participate in this submission and humility apart from his own understanding and extends the invitation to us too. Righteousness in Matthew's gospel, especially the Sermon on the Mount, is not necessarily about following the rules 
It is about a deeper tenor of alignment with God's justice, love, and mercy. A righteousness like Jesus's, like the servant in Isaiah, that does not seek perfection through unforgivingly high and exacting standards, but instead does not put out a struggling flame, does not crush the bruised people of this brutal world, but instead draws close to that pain and to our awareness of our own brokenness, bruises, inadequacies, and sinfulness on the day of his baptism and always. He humbles himself, and in response, he and others hear in a new way the affirmation of God's love, his identity, his calling. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism is, as we all know, not the end, but the beginning of his public ministry. It is the start of his work in the world in new ways. Often his baptism is compared to a commissioning. He was sent into the world at birth, but now he begins to interact with people in ways that fulfill and make known his unique vocation as Savior. Our baptisms are obviously different from his. No offense to Nikolai and his parents. I'm sure he is a precious child, but thankfully he's not been called to be Jesus. <laughs> but it is still worth pondering. What is the shape of Jesus' baptism? What are the outlines of this movement? Our own baptisms and lives echo from and within this shape, this silhouette. And I see this pattern in Matthew's gospel. Humility, recognition of belovedness, and call. Jesus Christ is, from the beginning, humble, loved, called. Humble, loved, called. It is not a bad place to begin in our understanding of who we are as those who share in his baptism. Our Jesus-shaped baptisms invite us again and again to trace these markers, to find out where these points are operating in our lives as followers of Jesus. Have we lost sight of humility? Does the belovedness piece seem faint? Do we take seriously our own call and trust that God actually has a claim and intention for our time on earth, just as he did Jesus's? In the next six weeks, you are invited into an intentional rhythm of prayer. Our diocese or larger church body is asking every member of the Episcopal Church in San Diego to take discipleship more seriously in 2020. There's a different theme or emphasis for each season, and, each year, and this year starts with a focus on prayer, taking intentional time to dwell with God each day. There are resources to support your prayer life for all ages, from apps to books to podcasts and videos. And I do hope you will take time to look at those if you feel stuck or in need of some new and potentially helpful tools. And we'll talk more about prayer in the weeks to come. But connecting it with baptism. I honestly have come to believe more and more that what is needed to begin in prayer 
or begin again in prayer is to be in touch with this Jesus-shaped baptism, to be humble, to be loved, to be called. Because if we are not humble before God, we will never play, pray, really. If we believe we can do this whole life thing on our own and need no direction or support from God, our prayer life will and does flounder, wither. If we do not set aside time and space and quiet for God to remind us of our own belovedness, we will forget. We will claw for the love and approval of the world and distort ourselves to fit its ideal image or pridefully harden ourselves against intimacy and relationship of all sorts. And finally, if we do not pray, if we do not talk to and listen for the voice of God, then we will not hear the call that God has placed upon our lives. The particular ways that the Spirit of Christ wants to continue his redeeming and reconciling work in the world through our bodies and gifts and time on this earth. There is so many things to do, but what is ours to do? What is yours to do? There is an answer, but it is most likely found in prayer. We have to make space to hear it and to hear it anew as time goes on and the answer shifts in alignment with our growth and God's wisdom. I hope we can be the kind of church that teaches people to pray the kind of community that encourages Nikolai in time to pray and equips his parents to teach him too. Not because praying, like baptism, is something we do to fulfill all righteousness in a legal check-the-box sense, but because it helps us to remember, like the baptismal water, that you belong to this life with God, a life of humility, love, and purpose. It is the very waters of our Jesus-shaped baptism, the waters of life as God's beloved children.